Let's start in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. The Lord laid it on my heart to begin a series on the subject of faith. I know that we teach on faith and have a lot of things to say regarding the subject of faith. But it's some of the most basic doctrine, one of the most basic doctrines in all of the scripture. And no matter how much we've heard, we need to keep hearing. Amen. So we're going to take our time over the next several weeks here on Sunday morning and uh, see what the Bible has to say about faith. Now, when you begin speaking on the subject of faith, you might as well start in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, which is the Bible definition of what faith is. Hebrews 11, 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Notice the first thing that the Bible tells us about faith in defining it for us. Faith and hope are not the same thing. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. That means you have to have hope as a goal setter. But faith and hope are not one and the same. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And he said, there abide three things, faith, hope, and love. Well, if faith, hope, and love are three things, then they can't be substituted for each other. You can't substitute hope for faith. You can't substitute faith for love. These are things that we're supposed to develop and operate in our lives. So now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Let me give you the uh, definition. I'm going to have to read this. Let me give you the the, uh, definition of this Greek word that's translated faith. It means persuasion or moral conviction of the truthfulness of God. It means constancy in profession. Profession are the words that we speak. It means constancy in profession. And then it goes on to say that it's a system of religious truth. Faith can most simply be described or identified as believing God. Accepting God's word to be true. Now a lot of people get faith and hope mixed up. I've had numerous people come to have hands laid on them to receive their healing. And especially if it's uh, somebody, well, really it's the same with everybody, but particularly if it's people from outside the church, I'll ask them what scripture they're standing on. I'll ask them what they're believing for. And it's amazing to me, not really surprising because I was in the same boat many years ago, but it's amazing to me how little people understand about what faith is. It's amazing that everybody seems to use this word faith. But I found out a long time ago that people have different definitions for or mean different things when they talk about faith. Imagine if a guy bought a house that didn't have central air conditioning. And over the course of time, he decides that he needs some air conditioning in his house. So he goes to Home Depot and buys a thermostat, comes home and sticks it on the wall. He starts spinning the dial trying to get it to to get cooler in the house. And he can't figure out for the life of him why the house isn't cooling off. Well, that's like hope. Hope is a wish. It's a dream. But it doesn't have any substance. See, the thing that makes the air conditioner work, the thing that cools off your house, is the unseen part, the stuff that's behind the walls. That's how faith is. 
Faith is the unseen part of receiving what you want from God. It's the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. I used to, uh, uh, hearing one of the things that I heard from Brother Hagin that really stuck with me is that he would say when he was believing for something, he started off when he was believing for his healing, but it works in the area of finances, it works in every other area. Brother Hagin would say when he was questioned about what he's believing for or not someone not being able to see what he's claiming by faith, he would always say, my faith is giving substance to it. He's believing for finances, certain amount of money for the ministry or whatever. He would always say, my faith is giving substance to it. My faith is giving substance to it. That always resonated with me. Because so many times the devil, well, in every case, really, the devil always wants to try to pull you over to what you can see or what you can't see and tell you that's the way that it is. Now turn back with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking to the church. Beginning in verse 16, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now what is the gospel of Christ? Well, gospel means good news. So the good news of Jesus would be that which the word of God tells us. The gospel of Christ literally is the word of God. So he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ or the word of God. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, notice verse 17. For therein, in the word of God, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now notice that last phrase, the just shall live by faith. That's an Old Testament scripture, Habakkuk chapter 2, that Paul identifies and uses, refers to three different times in his writings to the church. He writes this to the Romans, he includes it in what he wrote to the Galatians, and he writes it to the Hebrews in the book of Hebrews. The just shall live by faith. If you know anything about church history, that phrase, the just shall live by faith, is what sparked Martin Luther to come to a greater understanding of who God is and how to receive Jesus and led to the Reformation. That simple phrase, the just shall live by faith. He began meditating on that verse of Scripture and he came to the understanding that if the just shall live by faith, then all the things that the church was trying to impose upon people, rituals, penance, giving money to receive spiritual blessings, all those kinds of things, were not necessary in salvation. But there's another way to look at that. The just shall live by faith. We know that means that faith is necessary to enter into the, to eternal life. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. The faith that you have, the faith that is necessary to bring you into salvation is given to you of God. Well, we know how it's given. Romans 10.17 says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So the Word of God will always produce faith. If you're listening to preaching or teaching that doesn't build you up in faith, you're not listening to somebody that's preaching the Word. The Word will always produce faith. Well, as we said, the just shall live by faith. Faith is necessary to enter into eternal life. But faith is much more than that. 
Faith is something that enables you to live the Christian life once you're born again. It came as a real shock to me to find out faith was a tool that we were supposed to use. I grew up in the Baptist church, Southern Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Wonderful people. Loved them dearly. They loved me. They loved God. Wonderful people. But we never, I never, I, I won't speak for anybody else, I never remember anybody talking about receiving the blessings of God or the way to bring them into your, into your life. We just didn't talk about those things. We talked about living right. We talked about not drinking, not smoking, and not cussing. We did our best. But everything that, we, that, that I remember hearing in church was either information about how to get saved or how to rededicate your life to the Lord, the importance of living right and living above sin. But I never heard anybody talk about faith in any kind of way that, that it was expected of us to use as a tool. That was just foreign. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Let me show you something that Jesus said talking to his disciples. Well, where is it? Where is it? What I'm looking for. Luke chapter 17, starting, well, let's just start in verse 1. Then said he unto the disciples, it's impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he was cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. So he's talking about repentance now. Verse 4, And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Now Matthew's account of this says seven times seventy. So pick your number. He's just talking about as often as it happens, here's the way that we should operate. We should always operate in forgiveness. Notice the disciples' response. Verse 5, it says, And the apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say to this sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted into the sea, and it should obey you. Now, we want to continue reading a little bit, but let me interject some things here. There are 11 different characteristics that the Bible, the New Testament, gives for faith. Faith is, in many cases, uh, well, in one case, Jesus talked to the centurion about his great faith. You remember that? Well, when Jesus walked on the water to the disciples, Peter came out of the boat asking Jesus to tell him to come, and he did. He made it successfully a few, a little ways, but then he began to sink. And then Jesus talked about their little faith. He said, oh, ye of little faith, wherefore did thou doubt? So if faith is great, then it can be small. The Bible talks about unfeigned faith. The Bible talks about growing faith. The Bible talks about sincere faith. There are 11 different characteristics of faith that are used to describe this subject, this most important subject. And each one of them identifies that faith is measurable. 
Faith is measurable. Well, we know how faith comes. Again, Romans 10, 17, so then faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word. So if your faith is not growing, then that simply means you're not hearing the word. And every time you do hear the word, it will produce faith. That's what the word does. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. God established his word as a means or a source of providing faith for us. Now these guys, as ignorant as they were in certain situations, as much as Jesus upbraided them, for example, for not believing in the resurrection that he told them would happen, would take place, these guys still knew something that most people don't know today. They understood that forgiveness is a faith proposition. Well, if, faith, if unforgiveness is a faith proposition, it can't be a feeling proposition. In other words, if we're going to forgive, walk in forgiveness, and that's the only hindrance that Jesus ever identified that will keep your faith from working. Over in Mark chapter 11, he tells us about faith working by speaking to the mountain. In verse 24, he talks about faith working in prayer. In Mark 11:25, he talks about forgiveness being a necessary component. He said, when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anybody. Well, why is he talking about forgiveness right on the tail end of talking about faith? Because unforgiveness will keep your faith from working. And it's the only thing, the Bible, it's the only thing that Jesus told us that would hinder your faith. It's unforgiveness. So that must be a big deal. Wouldn't you agree? Well, the disciples knew something a lot of people don't know. A lot of people are trying to get their feelings in line with forgiving somebody, trying to get over whatever offense took place so that they can forgive. But that's not how forgiveness works. Under the old covenant, forgiveness was, even here as Jesus is referring, forgiveness was necessary for God to forgive you. If you don't forgive those who have trespassed against you, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Your trespasses. Well, that's Old Testament. Even though it's operating in the Gospels, referred to in the Gospels, it's still an Old Testament proposition or Old Testament principle. The Bible says that we're supposed to love and forgive as God loved us. Well, how did God forgive us? Did he wait till we apologized? Did he wait till his feelings got lined up with whatever he needed them to be? No, he forgave us when we were still ungodly. He died for the ungodly. So he forgave us based on his love, not based on our repentance. Well, that's the love of God that shed abroad in our heart today. That's the way that we're supposed to forgive. These guys understood that, even operating under the Old Testament. They said, Lord, increase our faith. If we're going to have to forgive somebody time after time after time, then we're going to need more faith for this. And Jesus says, not that you don't need more faith. He says, you need to use the faith that you have. If you said had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you would say to the sycamine tree, be plucked up by the roots and be removed or cast into the sea, and it would obey you. So he's saying faith, what they think they need to increase their faith, faith is increased by the knowledge of the word and by acting on what the word says. Now notice the next thing Jesus tells them. They're concerned about the increase of their faith if they're going to live up to what Jesus said. Jesus tells them to use the faith that they have by speaking to the tree or the problem or the area of unforgiveness. 
But look at verse 7. It says, But which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him by and by, when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meat? And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may eat, and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink? Does he thank the, the servant, that servant, because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you shall have done all these things which are commanded you, say we are unprofitable servants, we have done that which was our duty to do. There's two points that Jesus is trying to make here. The first point is that faith is your servant. Faith was designed to be your servant, to work for you. Not to be pampered, not to be idolized, but to serve you. The second point that he's trying to make here is that forgiveness is a duty that we all have. Again, it's a duty because we are supposed to forgive as God has already forgiven us. But notice that he said that faith is your servant. Faith is supposed to work for you. This is one of the eye-opening principles for me in my life. One of the landmark things that helped turn my life around. I mentioned before that growing up in the church that I was a part of, we never talked about faith. We never talked about the operation of faith. We knew that faith was important. We knew that you couldn't be saved without faith. We had that down. They, they put that into us, hammered that into us very well. But we never talked about where faith comes from. I was surprised to find out when I really began to read my Bible that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. I was also surprised to find out that faith can grow. Paul commended the Thessalonian church by saying, Your faith groweth exceedingly. Well, that means it's possible then, isn't it? Smith Wigglesworth talked about an ever increasing faith. Those things are possible, but we never talked about them in the church I grew up in. We never talked about faith as anything other than this, this abstract thing that was necessary to come into the kingdom of God, to enter into salvation. And so when I got around Brother Hagin, got into listening to, to the truth of the word, and got around him, the idea, the notion, the understanding that faith can work for you to change things in your life, that was new territory for me. It changed my perception of God in every possible respect. I knew God was good. I knew God wasn't behind all the tragedy that people laid on his doorstep. I knew those things inherently from the time that I was born again as a young child. I knew those things inherently. I knew that people blaming God for earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and all that stuff, I knew something about that wasn't right. I just had a witness of the Holy Ghost on the inside of me, not knowing there was a Holy Ghost, not knowing what a witness was. But looking back, I can see that I always had a witness on the inside of me that God wasn't behind all the things that people claimed he was doing. But when I found that faith was something that could be utilized at your will to take hold of and to receive the blessings of God, that revolutionized my life. When I came to understand that the just live by faith, and again, this notion of faith was not just something that got you into the kingdom of God, but this notion of faith or this principle of faith was something that brought you into any and all the blessings of God. 
that made as big a difference in me as that verse of Scripture, the just shall live by faith, made in to start the Reformation. It changed everything. It changed everything. I started learning about the fight of faith. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, fight the good fight of faith. It's the only thing the Bible tells us to fight against or to fight for. That's the only fight we've got. We don't fight against people. We don't fight against anything. Our fight is the good fight of faith. It opened up a whole new world for me. It opened up understanding of how good God is. Now let's look at some, some uh, examples real quickly. Turn back with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 tells us about what happened after the resurrection. Let's start in verse 19 to get the context of these scriptures. Then the same day at evening, this is uh, the Sunday that Jesus is resurrected. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. They're behind locked doors because they're afraid the Jews are coming after them now that they've killed Jesus. Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, folks, they, they either got something at this point in time or they didn't. If they didn't, then Jesus has tricked them. Because he breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Ghost. They are certainly in, in a position to expect something from him. The implication there is obvious. Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. A lot of people in the church world say that the church started on the day of Pentecost. Because Jesus told the disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, if the church didn't begin until the day of Pentecost, what happened here? What would be the purpose for Jesus breathing on them and saying, receive the Holy Ghost? We know that something changed. Luke chapter 24, about verse 52, tells about how the, the disciples, following this event, prior to the outpouring of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, how that they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were openly in the temple worshiping and praising God. Why aren't they huddled up behind closed doors anymore? Why aren't they hiding because of the fear of the Jews? They're not afraid of the Jews anymore. Something happened. Something changed. Well, what kind of change brings, or what brings about that kind of change in our lives? Well, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 8 how that Philip went down to Samaria and preached Christ unto them, and they believed him. They entered into the kingdom of God. They got born again. And it said, in great joy filled the city. So in Acts chapter 8, the evidence of people being born again, the great revival that took place through the preaching of Philip, brought about great joy. Well, that's what it says the disciples had when they returned to Jerusalem. Folks, my point is very simply this. This is the point where the disciples got saved. This is where the early church began. Then some 
40-something days later, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Ghost was poured out upon them, but a different measure of the Holy Ghost for a different purpose. But let's keep reading in John chapter 20. Verse 24, it says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Notice that phrase, I will not believe. He doesn't say I can't believe. He says I refuse to believe. And after eight days again, the disciples were within, and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless without faith. Be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus responded and said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they which have not seen and yet believed. I want you to realize something. The Thomas kind of faith or the position of being faithless is the place where people say, I won't believe unless I see. I won't believe unless I see. Jesus did not commend that style or that manner of faith. He just simply said, you believe because you see. But the blessing is not for the ones that have to see it before they believe it. The blessing is for those who having not seen yet believe. Now, folks, this is the same principle that we see in the Old Testament at the uh, edge of the promised land. In Numbers chapter 13, it tells us about how the 12 spies went into the promised land sent by Moses, one spy for every one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they came back, and 10 of them had what the Bible says, an evil heart of unbelief. They brought back an evil report. Paul instructs the church in in Hebrews not to have the same evil heart of unbelief that they had, but rather to believe in the truthfulness of God. So they came back with this evil report. What was the evil report? They said, we can't do it. We've seen the walls around the cities, and they're too tall for us to overcome. We've seen the people that live in the land, and they're stronger than us. We've seen that we are no match for them physically. We can't defeat them in a fight. So they're going by what they see. They're going by the the height of the walls that they saw the strength of the armies that they saw. They're going by all the circumstances that they could see with their physical eye. And they allowed their physical eyes, the information provided for, for them through their physical eyes, to overcome and to negate what God said he would do for his children. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, saw the same things that the other ten did. They saw the walls. They saw the people. They saw the strength of the cities and so forth. They saw all the same things. But they said, God is on our side. We can do this. Now, remember the definition of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. All 12 hope for the same thing. They hope for the promised land to be theirs. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things you cannot see. So faith always deals with the unseen. And it was the unseen 
that Caleb and Joshua were relying on that enabled them to have a good report of faith and to enter into the promised land even though they were delayed 40 years by the unbelief of the others. They saw the same thing that the others did. But they were looking at something else too. They looked at the promise of God. They saw and heard that God had promised to give them the land. In fact, God said, I've already given it to you. So just like Thomas, who decides to believe only what he can see, the ten spies said, because of what we've seen, we're in our sight as grasshoppers, and that's the way they see us too. Because of that, they failed to receive the promise of God. Now turn with me over to Romans chapter 4. Let's look at an example of somebody that has this God kind of faith. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, is the story of Abraham believing God for his son when he was about 100 years old and Sarah was about 90. Romans 4, 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. In other words, that's what God said to Abraham before he had any children. I have made thee the father of many nations. Now, folks, if they're going by what they can see, they meaning Abraham and Sarah, if Abraham and Sarah are going by what they can see, when God says, I have made thee the father of many nations, they should at that point simply call God a liar. They should say, how can you do this? And this is the thinking behind so many Christians today. How can God say that he's made him the father of many nations when he doesn't have any children? Everything, the lack of children, the absence of us being able to see the children that make up his family is proof that God can't be telling the truth. But folks, we've got to learn to turn this around the other way because God said it, it has to be true. Because God said it, it has to be true. Yeah, but what if we can't see it? What if what we see contradicts it? Then what we see that contradicts it will have to change. Because God cannot lie. If God said it's yours, then it's yours. If God said healing is yours, no matter what the doctor's diagnosis, healing is yours. Now that doesn't put the doctor at odds with God. That puts the sickness or disease that he's diagnosed at odds with God. Doctors aren't the enemy. Thank God for good doctors. I think the doctors are responsible for keeping a lot of Christians alive until they can start believing God. Doctors are never the enemy. But the sickness that has attached itself to your body, that's the enemy. And that's what has to change if we're really going to trust God's word. So Abraham took what God said, I have made thee the father of many nations. And he decided to be like God in this respect. In other words, he decided to take God's word as truth, no matter what he could see and what he could feel concerning his body and his age. As it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations before him whom he believed. This word before literally means like. Like unto him whom he believed, even God. In other words, the Bible is telling us that Abraham did something. Remember, faith is a tool. It's your servant. It's designed to work for you. It's designed to do the work of bringing things in line with or conforming to God's word. So Abraham made a decision. 
It doesn't tell us about his thought process, but we can conclude what it was pretty easily. Abraham made a decision that what God said was true because he's God. And so he was made the father of many nations, even though he didn't have any children yet. So he decided, since God is true, since what God says is always true, since what God says always comes to pass, if he can get people to cooperate with him, Abraham decided, I'm going to be like God in this. Well, in what way was he like God? It tells us two characteristics that Abraham imitated. The two characteristics of God that identifies before him whom he believed or like unto him whom he believed, even God, number one, who quickens the dead. He makes dead things alive. Well, reproductively, both Abraham and Sarah's bodies were dead. God didn't seem to think that was a big deal. God didn't seem to think that that was a hindrance to keep his plan and purpose for Abraham from coming to pass. Abraham and Sarah's bodies being dead reproductively was not a big deal where God was concerned. It wasn't sufficient to keep his plan and purpose from coming to pass. Well, folks, if the impossibility in Abraham and Sarah of having a child because of their age and because of the conditions of their bodies, if that wasn't big enough to stop the promise of God from coming to pass, then the situation you and I, you and I are facing can't be big enough to stop the promise of God from coming to pass either. And that's why Abraham is the father of faith. He's an example that works for everybody. So Abraham decided, I'm going to be like God in these two things. Number one, bringing dead things back to life. How does God bring dead things back to life? Through his words. We understand Hebrews chapter 11 goes on to say, we understand that the whole world was formed by things that do not appear, by unseen things. It doesn't say God made the earth out of nothing. It says God used something unseen to create everything that we can see and feel around us. Folks, there's a big difference. God didn't make the world out of nothing. He made the world out of his words. Words are not nothing. You can't see them. You can't see the power or the force that's behind them. But words are the furthest thing in, in the whole universe from nothing. So Abraham decides I'm going to be like God. How's he going to be like God? He's going to begin speaking life unto his body. Every time he called himself the name that God gave him, the name Abraham, which means father of many nations, every time he uses the name that God gave him rather than the name he was born with, he's declaring or speaking life to his body. He's calling himself what God called him. He's saying of himself what God said of him. Now, folks, this is the point where a lot of people punt. Because a lot of people will listen to the devil who says, if you're saying things that are not physical realities, you've got to be lying. So many people turn back on the confession part of faith because they can't overcome the idea that if God said it, it's impossible for it to be a lie. And I would recommend to you that when the devil tries to tell you that you're lying because you're calling things that be not as though they were, suggest that he takes it up with God. You're just repeating him. So every time Abraham calls himself by the name God gave him, he's speaking life to his body. The second characteristic of God that it identifies is that God calls things that be not as though they were. 
God calls things that be not as though they were. God calls you healed by the stripes of Jesus. No matter what your physical condition is. That's what the Bible says about you. Now if you're fighting sickness and disease. Then that means that if you agree with God. You're going to be calling things that are not as though they were. For the purpose of making them what God said it was. I know that's confusing and I can't say it again. But you're going to have to come to the place where you realize that because God said it, because it's God's word, it's impossible to be a lie. It's impossible for it to be a lie. This is the point where I was referring earlier that Brother Hagen, earlier in the service, where Brother Hagen was saying, My faith is giving substance to my healing or my finances or whatever. My faith is giving substance to it. Calling things that are not as though they were is your faith giving substance to the things that you hope for. So these two things are what Abraham decided to do. He decided to speak life to his body by calling things that be not as though they were. It goes on to say in verse 18, Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. In other words, it's telling us this. It's telling us that he had no natural hope. There was no physical circumstance that he could look to or point to and say, this is how I know. In fact, all the circumstances of his body and his age, as well as Sarah's, all those circumstances said that it can't be true. So Abraham had no natural hope. He had no natural circumstance whatsoever to put his faith in. Well, if he's not putting his faith in natural circumstances or the things that he can see and feel, what's he going to put his faith in? What's he going to use as a foundation for his faith? It tells us right here, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. That was his dream. That was his wish. How's he going to give substance to that dream or that wish? He believed according to that which was spoken. Instead of believing what he can see, instead of believing in natural circumstances, he believed according to that which was spoken. Folks, that phrase will get you through so many battles, faith battles. It'll get you through every faith battle, as a matter of fact. There are times where you just have to look at the devil and look at your situation and say, I believe according as it was spoken. I believe according it was, as it was spoken. See, it's telling us what Abraham put his faith in. He did not put his faith in the circumstances. He didn't have any circumstance to believe in. Well, if he's not going to believe according to what he can see and feel, what's he going to believe according to? According to that which was spoken. So shall thy seed be. That's a reference to when God showed him the stars of the sky and told him to number them. He said, I can't do that. There are too many. God said, so shall your seed be. That's what Abraham put his faith in. Now, remember, remember Thomas. Thomas says, that unless I can see the print of the nail in his hands and put my finger in there and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Again, he didn't say I couldn't believe. He says, I will not believe. Believing is a choice. Faith is a choice. It's a choice you have to make. It's a choice you have to continue in. There's gonna, there is a fight of faith. If you're going to fight that good fight of faith and win it, you're going to have to continue to believe according to that which was spoken. So Abraham put his faith in what God said. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Verse 19. And being not weak in faith, 
He considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Notice what weak faith does. Weak faith considers the condition of your body. Weak faith considers the circumstances that are around you. Weak faith considers the absence of money or resources in your bank, in your account. Weak faith operates like the ten spies did when they came back from spying out the promised land. Again, the ten spies said, we can't do it. The reason we can't do it is because the walls are too big for us. The people are too great. They're too strong. Their military might is greater than ours. So we can't do it. That's what weak faith does. Weak faith relies on the circumstances, and when the circumstances don't line up with what God says, they quit. But Abraham was not weak in faith. So what did he do? What was necessary for him to do so that he would not be weak in faith? He considered not his body dead. He considered not his body and Sarah's body to be dead. That just simply means, folks, it do, well, first of all, it doesn't mean that they denied the reality, the physical reality. They did not deny the, the ages of their bodies. They did not deny the conditions of their bodies. They recognized the situation they were in. That's why when God spoke to Abraham a year before his son Isaac was born, Abraham's at the place where he's laughing at the promise. Am I going to have a child now that I'm 100? God first appeared to him when he was 75. It was doable at 75. It's not doable at 100. So Abraham started off laughing at God. You've got to be kidding. God says, what are you laughing at? God explains to him. Abraham responds. He says, how can I have a son when I'm old? How can Sarah bear after she's gone through menopause? How is that possible? God winds up asking him the simple question that all of us need to consider. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, some people will look at that, that uh, principle or that phrase, is anything too hard for the Lord? And they'll say, well, God can do anything. So since God can do anything, we're going to believe for something outside of what the Word tells us is ours. That never works. But because God can do anything, no matter how opposed our situations or our circumstances are to the promises of God, God will bring it to pass. God will bring it to pass. So being not weak in faith, Abraham considered not his own body now dead, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, but was strong in faith. He was strong in faith. Again, folks, that's a choice. He chose to be strong in faith. How did he do that? Verse 20. He staggered not at the promise of God. The word staggered means wavered. It means he didn't go back and forth on what God promised. He settled it once and for all. God said that I would, he had made me the father of many nations. God knows how old I am. He knows how old Sarah is. He knows the conditions of our body. And he still said that he made us the father of many nations. So he chose not to stagger. Well, if he's not looking at his circumstances, if he's not looking at the conditions of his body, what is he looking at? He's looking at God's promise. He keeps God's promise before his eyes. He's not in denial about the condition of his or Sarah's body. He may have started off every day saying, well, we don't look any younger. We don't feel any younger. But God said he made us the father of many nations. 
Remember the definition of the Greek word that's translated faith. One of the definitions is a moral conviction of the truthfulness of God. I love that. That's what faith is. Faith is believing that God told the truth. Faith is simply believing that God told the truth. So he staggered not at the promise of God. In other words, he keeps his eyes open, seeing the promise rather than seeing the circumstances. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Strong faith is identified by two characteristics. Number one, giving glory to God. Thanking God for the answer before you can see the answer. That's a characteristic of strong faith. It's proof that you believe God's word no matter what the circumstances are. The second characteristic of strong faith is that he was persuaded. Paul, uh, Abraham was fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. That's the answering to the question, is anything too hard for God? How do you get to the place where you're fully persuaded that what God promised he's able also to perform? Folks, there's one way and only one way to get there. And that is to keep saying, all things are possible to him that believes. All things are possible with God, and all things are possible with him that believes. The more you talk about the possibility because of God's word, for whatever the, the, the results you're looking for, physical healing, finances, or whatever, the more you talk about the truth of God's word, the possibility of God to do the impossible, the more you talk about that, the stronger your faith will grow. But the more you talk about your circumstance, the more you focus on your lack and your inability. Faith gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So Abraham decided to be strong in faith. He gave glory to God. He thanked God for the answer before he saw the answer. And he became fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Who's in the hall of fame of faith, Thomas or Abraham? Thomas didn't make the list. Thomas is operating only by what he can see and feel. And folks, I've got to tell you, Thomas won the eternal lottery. Because most people, when I say most people, I mean it's extremely rare that anybody that says I won't believe in Jesus unless I can see him ever winds up believing in Jesus. Thomas was fortunate that in spite of his unbelief, Jesus was still willing, still willing to appear to him. And he said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you believe. But that's not what the blessing is. The blessing goes to those who have not seen and yet believe. Faith is the substance of things that you hope for. Faith is the inner workings. It's the foundation that brings into reality the things that God has said to you. Now, folks, let me make a couple of uh, statements here to you that I want you to consider. What's the purpose of God's word? What's the purpose of God's promises? So many things that we call promises are really just facts that have already taken place. For example, we talk, talk about the promise of healing. Healing is not really a promise. Healing has been affected by the work of Jesus already. So it's really not a promise. We don't have something to look forward to that will ensure our healing. Rather, the Bible tells us about things that have been done already to purchase and to affect our healing for our bodies. 
But whether you call it a promise, whether you call it a fact, whatever you want to call it, what is the purpose for the promises that are given to us in the Word of God? There's only one reason that He gave them to us, and that is to fulfill them. That's the only reason the Bible tells us that by Jesus' stripes we were healed. Because it's the fulfillment. And God delights in the fulfillment of the things that Jesus has done for us. Hebrews 11 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. Based on the things that we've talked about this morning, think about what that means. That means without calling things that be not as though they were, it's impossible to please God. That means without speaking life to your bodies, to your flesh, it's impossible to please God. That means without speaking to the sycamine tree, the root of unforgiveness, and telling it to be gone from your life, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, without a moral conviction of the truthfulness of God, it's impossible to please Him. Think about what that means. That means God's pleasure. That means God's acceptance. That means God's delight is based on you having what Jesus purchased for you. Faith is not the great thing. Faith is a servant. Faith is a tool. The great thing is the God that brings to pass the promises that he's made. We don't want to make a God out of faith. We simply want to recognize that faith is the means, the manner in which we take hold of what Jesus has already done for us. It's the method by which healing becomes ours. It's the method whereby our needs are met. It's the method where the, whereby the goodness of God comes to reality in our lives, comes into physical reality in our lives. It's already real. Everything Jesus has done for us is already real. But it's faith that makes it a physical reality. Amen? Amen. Well, we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about faith. We're going to turn over every rock, look under every chip, and talk about faith until it really gets down on the inside of us. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand up. While you're standing, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us the measure of faith, the same spirit of faith that you used to create the worlds. We have a measure of that God kind of faith. We determine, Father, to grow that faith by feeding on your word and acting accordingly. We thank you, therefore, Father, that we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. We're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. All of our needs are met according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And that our lives are encompassed about with the favor of God. We thank you, Father, for all these things. Not because we see them in our lives, but because these are the things that you've spoken to us. We believe according to that which was spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, don't forget the town center, the food court Sunday type stuff. Thanks for being with us. We love you.